In the early days of MMA, a pro wrestler's dream of real combat would revolutionize the game in Japan. But would it be any good? Find out when we watch the 1994 Valley Tudo Japan. Crazy territory stories, double crosses, and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. You press the button, you did the thing, you opened the app, you opened the window. What are you even listening to this on? You brought us into your ears, into your brain. We're the voices in your head, but not the one that tells you the moon is fake or to put chili in your pants. What am I talking about? What's even happening? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter. I am a pro wrestling booker. But more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling history nerd. And I am here with the Oma Plata to, the, to my Gogo Plata. And that means we're the cool things you claim you did, even though you didn't. That's right. We're sexy. We're here. And I'm here with Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you? Well, I'm a little embarrassed now because I've actually lost to an Omoplata. So I guess you are what you die by. So in that way, I am, I am, I can attest to the rarity and the coolness of the Omoplata. And yeah, the Gogo Plata, you got to be doing a lot of DDP yoga to get that thing in, Daddy. And submission holds are definitely going to be coming up in conversation today because we are now clear of our big picture series on wrestling in the 1920s hopefully you listen to it and if you didn't by all means go back and listen to it it's still there it's not going anywhere start with Stanislaus Abisko work your way through the magic but now we're just gonna be talking about some fun things that we enjoy and hopefully you'll enjoy as well and as always I like to give the disclaimer that if for some reason you listen to something we say and think Hey, idiots, you got that wrong. Or, hey, you, you you clearly never understood the genius of this. Well, you know what? Sometimes we're wrong. Most of the time we're right. But this is definitely one where it all comes down to opinions. And who boy, are we going to have some opinions today? Because we are going to talk about the Valley Tudo Japan in 1994. When was the last time you watched this thing? It has been... Many moons. Uh, we were doing. We were trying to do the math earlier, which is not my strong suit. But it's been at least since 2012 or earlier. Because in the early days of MMA or NHB, as they called it in those uh, those times, there was no easily accessible internet where you could order anything and everything you wanted with a click of a button. Finding non-SEG owned content, you would either have to order it out of a martial arts magazine ad, mailing a check or giving a credit card number over the phone and hoping for the best, or you'd have to track it down to that rare video store that would cater to fight fans, usually lumping UFC VHS tapes in with the pro wrestling. And most blockbusters would have the hit VHS of UFC 2, and some of them would even have UFC 1, but that was a little trickier to find. But the expert level Easter egg hunts were for the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu in action and the Valley Tudo Japans. Those were the ones where only the cool kids had that. You'd have that one friend that dropped totally. the... Like, what were those VHSs? Like, 60 fucking dollars. They were so expensive. You couldn't find them anywhere because nobody but the most hardcore nerds even knew what the hell you were talking about. It's like being a music fan back in those days where if you could find that early album of the hip band that everybody's getting into, that gave you bragging rights, turned you into an absolute hipster douchebag. But God damn it, that's who I was in those age. I, I was the MMA jiu-jitsu hipster gatekeeper. 
and gosh darn it, I stand by that proudly. Yeah, and I was just like, the I had the, the vacuous appetite of learning all things martial art and pro wrestling. So like, uh, the way I got my first uh, copy of that tape is quite interesting. There was like a fight on the bus, and... You know, let's just say the nerds don't do so well in those type of situations. And I saw the opportunity to help, like, the king of the tape traders. And I believe, like, his brother was stationed in... I don't remember, but he had the inside lane, man. And I definitely... I, I backed him up one day, and I took a I took a proper right cross in, in, in the cost of getting access to that one. And my, my, my access to it is a little less dramatic. I just had a friend who, who spent too much money having a copy sent to his house... And they did not have the wherewithal, the good planning, the marketing acumen to make those protected VHSs. So we could hook up VHS player to VHS player and everybody got a copy. And I had not watched this in a million years. And this was originally going to be a much different story. I was going to concentrate on how there was that time in the uh, fight game where every big promotion, if they were going to roll something out, they needed a Gracie. And that was still true. But there's a lot of things in this story that I did not know, how it connected to pro wrestling, how it connected to pro wrestling in Japan. And it's an interesting story. Because did you know like about the guy who thought this up? Did you know who uh, created the Valley Tudo Japan? The original Valley Tudo Japan, I know like the people who had hands in it, but as far as I know, the it was sort of like the copycat of what UFC had done in the United States, right? And that's exactly where I started when I had started looking things up. When most people think of MMA in Japan, the first and usually the only thing that comes to mind is Pride FC, and with good reason. It was a bigger-than-life fight league with some of the biggest stars of the day, giving a pro wrestling flavor to brutal combat during a time when the UFC could barely get on pay-per-view. And oh, how the times have changed with that. But before Pride, there was another early MMA company that had plenty of ambition and the resources to back it up. And that was Shudo Presents Valley Tudo 1994. And this predates Pride. The first Pride event took place in 1997, almost as a challenge and reaction to the Valley Tudo Japan in 94 and 95. And while there had been proto-MMA in Japan for a while, with companies like Rings and Pancrase evolving out of the shoot-catches-catch-can style wrestling, and they did put on legit, for the most part, competition, the rules, techniques, and strategies made Shoot Pro Wrestling just that. Shoot Pro Wrestling. So then I'm sure you're asking, what is Shooto? And here I'm going to do something I not only hate, but am not very good at. Condensing a story for the sake of brevity. The story of Japanese wrestling promoters and promotions rising, falling, fading, feuding, mutating, and rising again in different forms could be a multi-part series unto itself, but for the story at hand, I have to take a deep breath, remember that I can revisit this all later, and keep it simple, because good lord, imagine how long you and I could blather if we were just talking about the difference between New Japan, All Japan, Real Japan, Fujiwara Gumi, uh, Rise. You know, like, there's so many companies, and they all split off from the same people, and if we were to dive into that, I think we would probably talk until we died of dehydration. Yeah, of awesomeness... 
But I mean, what an amazing topic. But yeah, that's a that's a five minutes or five hours if you're gonna crack that uh, can of whoop ass on the air. So we got yeah, we got to keep it bre- brevitatious. So the the footnotes version, the Cliff's notes, the note I passed in class to help you cheat on your test version. Thank you. <laughs> Japanese wrestling spent decades obsessed with legitimate competition and realistic styles of fighting inside the world of pro wrestling. The many students of Carl Gotch spread a style of catch-as-catch-can that was far removed from what their American cousins were doing in the ring. Men like Antonio Noki sought to combine hard Kyokushin karate style into pro wrestling, making it a hard-hitting, realistic portrayal of grappling that most now call strong style. How would you describe strong style in today's pro wrestling atmosphere? Uh, I would say laying it in, but uh, but the the psychology is different. The American style is you want to get the least physical uh, impact and the most emotional elicitation from the audience. Strong style almost has a proponent of honor and sort of like moxie to it where you are, there is an element of displaying your toughness and you are really adding some pepper and some authenticity to it for the sake of both the performance, but also for the honor, to honor the true roots of the combat sport. And one of the biggest proponents of this style was an Inoki-trained wrestler named Satoru Sayama. Sayama got his start with New Japan Pro Wrestling, but was undersized at the time, weighing around 160 pounds. So they sent him to England and Mexico to cut his chops. He returned, to New J- he returned to New Japan and adopted a new gimmick, Tiger Mask. New Japan wanted to draw a younger crowd, so they decided to adapt the anime character Tiger Mask to the ring, with Sayama playing the role. He immediately became a huge star. On April 23rd, 1981, we saw him and the Dynamite Kid putting on an instant classic, with Tiger Mask pinning the Dynamite Kid with a German suplex. Their rivalry would define this era in Japanese wrestling, and in their 1983 Sumo Hall match, they earned the first five-star rating awarded by a young Dave Meltzer. Is there any way to overstate the importance of Tiger Mask and Dynamite Kid's role in the history and development of modern pro wrestling? Uh, I don't think so, and that's still underselling it. I mean, I'll put it like this. I don't think I can count on one hand in all of pro wrestling or sport, frankly, where something came along that was so much ahead of its own curve that the style of what it was not only hadn't become a thing really yet, but is now one of the most prominent sub-styles in pro wrestling. This, it would like work rate five-star, like, uh, like you said, the first ever five-star match. And you could make an argument that no one has surpassed that match in that style of, of a match. And you can definitely not hold up many cases where someone, you know, we're talking, what, 81, 80, right? 83? Yeah, 81, 83. It was an early 80s feud. They worked all across Japan. 40 together. years ago, man, before that style was even a thing. And now that style is the prominent thing, and no one has come across, and you can say that surpassed that match. That's how tremendous that match was. 
and he was a brilliant performer. That match holds up even by today's standards. But while he was a popular and brilliant pro wrestler, Sayama was a martial artist at heart and sought to create a system based on the realities of combat, born from Carl Gotch's style of wrestling and the Inoki striking style of wrestling. Thus, Shudo was born. For decades, wrestling promoters and stars had made their names by accusing everyone else of being fakes, and only themselves being truly dangerous fighters in the ring. So Japanese wrestling in the 70s and 80s was kind of where American pro wrestling was in the 20s and 30s, where it was legitimate combat oriented. It was a work, but you were the one saying, I'm the real fighter. We're the real fighters putting on real fights. It's all these jerks that were working. They're all the workers. We're the shooters. We're the ones who are really kicking ass. They're the ones who are just pretending, playing, fighting like a bunch of silly geese. And that is the foundation of what Japanese pro wrestling and later Japanese MMA became. Yeah, and there's nothing new under the sun in that regard. I mean, you know, that guy's faking it. I'm the toughest, I'm the toughest guy in these here parts. That's the that's the tale as old as the hills, and that's that works on the micro and the macro, both for the wrestlers and for the promotions. But what do you say when Tiger Mask, who is like the dopest of both, says it? Then you're like, uh-oh. Yeah, and this was a time, you have to keep in mind, they were doing this shoot style. We are shooters, you are workers. Meanwhile, in America, this is the rise of early WWF. This is the, the time where it's bigger than life characters. It's not quite what it would become just a few years later. But those early mid-80s WWF, when you have the Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant, the early WrestleManias, the complete opposite on the showbiz to real fight spectrum. So I could see them very much trying to make a culturally distinct version of pro wrestling. And Japan essentially coined the term shoot wrestling as a way to claim this show is doing it for real while doing these worked matches that look very technical and hard hitting. The everyone is a faker but me marketing ploy saturated the market thus turning many promotions against each other and former friends into bitter enemies. Like I said, I simply don't have time to go through all the details on that, but the politics of pro wrestling in Japan in the 80s is fascinating and insane. It's like trying to explain the intricacies of World War I. Once you get into it, you're going to be in it for a while. So let's just simplify things by saying that Satoru Sayama wanted to create something real inside pro wrestling, but also something real inside martial arts. So he created Shudo. As you probably figured out yourself, it stems from shooting matches, foreshortened to Shudo, which means to shoot, and avoids branding confusion with target shooting sports, anything with a gun, a bow and arrow, a slingshot, whatever it is, you are shooting. And Shudo was founded in 1986 as an amateur competition and went pro in 89. The fights had rounds and rules with elbows and headbutts not being allowed, striking on the ground not being allowed in amateur competition, and wearing fingerless gloves much like in modern MMA. Like back in the day, I never got to watch Shudo, but I always knew of Shudo. I would read about it in the forums. 
and I, I just, but it was just one of those like fascinating things I could just never get my hands on because again, pre find everything on the internet. Did you, did you ever get to watch it back in the, back in the day? No, it was like that. We, I just figured it was kind of like all the fools that were about that life and training for the eventual Kumite were like, that had gathered in Japan and were like, it was vague, you know, cause there wasn't, you guys gotta understand there wasn't an internet, man. Our internet was like word of mouth on the playground and little little clips in the back of magazines or, you know, there were so many obscure ways that you would get your information, but there wasn't like a streamlined source. So you kind of had this vague impression of what it was and it was really cool and sort of mythical. Yeah, it's the same thing with Rings. I remember when Rings had that huge tournament and like Maurice Smith and I think Dan Henderson was in it. And these would literally be, you go to a, an online forum on, on an MMA site and like somebody from Japan would give you the results because they watched it on TV. Like this was not something where you could check out Twitter and go, oh man, that fight sounded pretty gosh darn wild. I can't wait to watch the, the, clip, the clips, the gifts, the whatever is on YouTube. That simply wasn't available. And this sport was flourishing. It was legitimate competition, more or less, with that hard-hitting Japanese-style pro wrestling rule set. But things changed in 1993 when the UFC held its first event here in Denver, Colorado, with Hoist Gracie winning the tournament. The bare-knuckle, no-weight-class, nearly-anything-goes style appealed to Satoru Sayama, who decided to do a similar event in Japan under the Shudo banner calling it the Valley Tudo Japan, thus connecting the style to a Brazilian origin while being wholly Japanese in concept and execution. And the rules were similar to Shudo. Two eight-minute rounds, gloves, 10 count off of knockdowns, or submissions. Like, you could legitimately get wow. tapped out to a choke, and they would give you a standing count. It's, really? Yeah, it's, it's so goddamn weird. Low blows, headbutts, biting, gouging, stepping on spine. So it really was closer to modern MMA than the bare knuckle circus spectacle of the U.S. And I feel that speaks culturally to the differences because America is a carny country, top to bottom. We like our spectacles. This is the time of the you know, spring break, you know, Girls Gone Wild VHSs. This is the time Jerry of... Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer, exactly. The time of bum fights. All sorts of awful things that we just go for our spectacle. UFC fit that. Meanwhile, Japan had that long history of the martial arts concept built into their pro wrestling, built into their fighting style. So I think that probably seemed a little on the barbaric side. They kind of needed to meet things in the middle. And Shudo was already pre-established. So what they did is went, oh, we can more or less market this with like a Brazilian flair and kind of tie it into the UFC's you know, market share and see what we can do with pay-per-view. But how do you tie it into Brazil after Hoist Gracie uh, just demonstrated his family jiu-jitsu style? Well, here's an idea. Get yourself a Gracie. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the game plan for pretty much any... Gracie became like... The working name of pretty much all Brazilians after that, and this was maybe the first example of that, or yeah, because this came after that, and this is you know this really did usher in an era where everybody who tried to put together a big MMA pay per view, you needed a Gracie. 
you know, the, uh, you know, Henzo Gracie got his uh, first big pay-per-view after that. Half Gracie with yeah. extreme fighting. So it was something where you more or less needed a Gracie in the tournament or on the card to legitimize the card or the tournament. It was just something you had to do. Yeah. Otherwise, A, the fans are going to go, well, why didn't you have so-and-so Gracie, blah, blah, blah. Or the Gracies would probably come out themselves and say, completely illegitimate because nobody from my family was on there and we would have beaten everybody. So it was a double-edged sword. And Satoru Sayama learned about the Gracies through UFC 1 and about Hickson in particular through Yorinaga Nakamura, who in turn learned about him via Shudo standout Eric Paulson, who had trained extensively with Hickson. Who is Hickson Gracie, for those of you that don't know? The third oldest son of Elio Gracie, and is a legend in the world of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. But how much of that is myth, and how much is real, and how much would that quality translate to the Japanese fighting event on July 29th, 1994 in Tokyo Bay, NK Hall in Urasua, Japan. The legend of Hicks and Gracie. Give us a rundown. Well, um, first of all, as as with any mythical creature or, or, or figure in, in the pantheon of sport, um, he, he, I'm sure a lot, you know, there's a fantastic amount of, of fond remembrance and misembellishment. And then you have to add the Gracie Carney element to it too. But what you can't dispute is this. He's the GOAT. He is the proto-GOAT of all jiu-jitsu. He was the alpha dog of the Gracie brothers. And the reason he wasn't in the first UFC was because he was considered so dominant within the family that they put the run out there. They put Hoist out there to intentionally visually demonstrate the dominance of the martial art itself as opposed Hickson's like my size almost he's about six foot maybe 210 in his prime and an absolute technical wizard and an aggressive beast on the ground he was the most dominant guy in jiu-jitsu at that time in Brazil and that's legitimate when it came to you know the records or whatever there wasn't nobody coming out saying that they, that they kicked Hickson's ass and he was considered in the Gracie family the tough, toughest dog. And by the way, my sensei is his oldest living black belt, Coral Belt uh, Grandmaster Valdemiro Perez Jr., of whom which I am the ninth black belt of. So Hickson has actually cornered me as a white belt and a blue belt before. And is, you know, it's pretty cool to have that level of carny in my jiu-jitsu lineage too. Yeah, because, I mean, there is a certain amount of carny. I mean, it is the, the Gracie family. We've kind of discussed that totally. in the UFC episode. That's a whole thing unto itself. There is the questionable, his 400-0 record. Oh, that yeah. That's... That even his dad called bullshit on in, a, in interviews. But, you know, there is nobody who's come really come out and been like, oh, well, yeah, no, I, I, I tapped him. Like, there's no real stories like that. And there is the reason that they put Hoist in instead of him, because as you said, he looks like a fighter. He looks like an athlete. He looks like somebody who will beat your ass. Hoist was the ringer. Hoist was the, yeah, the, exactly. the, the skinny <laughs> kid who looks like he should have a pocket protector and be part of the chess club. So he was the ringer. He was that jujitsu gi might as well have been his overall showing up to the carnival saying, 
by golly, I think I can wrestle. Mind if I give it a poke, sir? So there was a lot of, of, of interest in that. So they decided to get themselves a Gracie. They went with the top shelf. Eric Paulson, who was a Shudo standout and a hell of a grappling man himself, and they brought in Hickson. They brought in the guy who looked like a fighter, but the question will be, did they bring him in to showcase him, or did they bring him in so that their guy could beat the best Gracie and therefore lay claim to the level of being the best fighter of the best fighting system that the world could possibly present? And that is a gamble either way. And we're yep. going to get into it when we watch The Valley Tudo 1994. And there's a couple ways to watch this. So if you're going, that sounds fascinating for whatever reason. How do I watch this? Yeah, it's on Fight Pass, but it's just the straight Japanese pay-per-view. You can also watch it on YouTube, which is how we're going to do it, where it has the English dub, things are in the right order. Because when you watched it as a U.S. product, there is a Shudo rules match between two Japanese fighters that was done between the semi and the main event to give the tournament finalists a little time to rest and recuperate. But when you watched it on VHS, they would put that almost as a bonus feature afterwards because anybody who bought that VHS had no interest in watching a Japanese Shudo rule. They were just there for Hicks and Gracie and Hicks and Gracie alone. Yeah, Hickson is, the, you know, he was, because you got to remember too, that was part of the mythos, right? That, oh, Hoist is the little one. Hickson's the scary one. Hickson's so scary, they wouldn't even let him in the cage. Exactly. So his his was a situation where they were like, oh, we finally get to see Hickson. Yeah. Oh my God, this is, this is going to be a bloodbath. It's going to be, it's going to be like playing Street Fighter 2 and the other guy's controller is unplugged. So we're yeah. gonna get into this. We're gonna watch this thing and kind of give you our our opinions, our thoughts, our deeply held core beliefs. And oh my goodness, what a what a what a magical magical viewing this was. So they did something I always find funny with with uh, MMA fighting whatever when they don't have archive footage. They put together the, I mean it was the '90s, so I have to give a little bit of forgiveness. So it's the. The, the public access level opening of the show that has nothing but clips of the show you're about to watch. It's nothing but clips of the fights you're about to see. And they actually do have a little bit of a spoiler in the opening credits, but I don't think that anybody who picked this up or saw it after the fact was surprised by anything else. And this really was, on the broadcast side, pushed towards the American uh, pay-per-view and VHS audience. So, yeah, they didn't really put Shudo in the title of it. They wanted to more or less make it its own entity, probably to draw away from people wondering what Shudo is, what, you know, any pro wrestling connection. They wanted it to make it look like pure MMA. Good idea, bad idea in the long run. Well, I think, I think now, obviously... You, you, you're going to kick yourself anytime you miss a golden golden ring or like Shudo Valley Tudo. Because that, that mirrors the two, uh, it kind of marriages the two terms and sort of philosophies. But, you know, like you said, it's the 90s and they didn't have any archive footage. So they had to you go to the current shit. I mean, hey. Yeah, and also, like, I, like today I would say that was incredibly dumb because, you know, you're like, oh man, if you're not putting Shudo in front of this, well, you're yeah. not advertising your main brand. You're not getting that name out there in front of new eyes. 
but it's 1994. It's not like they could sign up for a Shudo streaming service or, you know, buy, t you know, like there was no benefit in doing it. So it didn't make a lot of marketing sense to do it. Keep it as like a separate thing in case they got to hack it off so they can be like, this wasn't us if it was an abomination or something. Yeah, I think it was just for simplicity's sake and just to tie it into, into that. And after the opening credits, we're treated to that typical early MMA, pad the runtime because it is a tournament. Let's meet the fighters. Let's watch them lifting weights and training and doing nose boops and all the other deadly techniques. Let's have a moment with the promoter to have him run down the rules. I have heard rumors that the rules did go, because they wanted it to be more like UFC, but I've heard that some of the rules were changed when Hickson came on board. I don't know the full story there, so that really does kind of go down to rumor. So the first fight of the night, and who boy, is it a gosh darn classic. And I say that with a grin and a wink in my heart, because who boy, is it something. And that fight, the first one of the tournament, is Bud Smith versus Chris Bass. Have you heard of either of these men? The legend of Bud versus Bass. I mean, the the, na the name test sells itself, bro. You know, that's the funny thing to do when you watch these ones, is you can't even find any information on half these guys on the internet. And you have to remember, they were flown to Japan in an airplane. They were paid money. They were put up in a hotel. There was a massive financial investment. And this fight, who boy. Easily the one of the better ones of the night, and that's not necessarily a compliment to the fight itself. So the most important factor of this first match is nothing that happened with feet, fists, or elbows. It's about fashion. And Bud Smith brought the 90s martial arts fashion to this ring. He was wearing Muay Thai shorts with a U.S. flag pattern. He had the mustache mullet combo. He looked like he would be played by Danny McBride in the movie version of this if he shrunk down to about 190 pounds versus a guy who came out to be karate fighter number three in a Bloodsport VHS sequel. Dude, Bud Smith is about that life, bro. If you were to encapsulate a 1994 tough guy, drunk man fight contest winner with some actual, he had some actual kickboxing skills and you saw a little bit of skill right there. Two piece and a biscuit. That was a clean knockdown. And dude, the, but yes, the mullet and the mustache combo with the American Muay Thai shorts Dude, that guy is like an early hero, a, a forgotten legend of the game, bro. And we also commented while watching it about how they used to announce people as, you know, badasses and street fighters. Yeah. It was so much Super more... tough street fighter, real guy. Yeah, it was, it was very weird. And the fight itself was very brief. They come out, they were just almost immediately going at it. Bud Smith dropped Chris Bass with a shot. It seemed like it was more of a slip fall than a, than a clean knockdown. And Bass immediately recovered going for like a karate style leg scissor sweep from the floor. Yeah. But the referee counted it as a, a knockdown and started the count. He got up in time. They go back at it. Bud Smith immediately cracks Bass with a straight shot, knocks him down clean, couldn't answer the 10 count, 
that is that. The first match is over. The first fight is over. And it was a good first impression. It was like Gerard Jordeau flatlining uh, yeah. the, the sumo wrestler in the first fight of UFC 1. It did a very good job of setting the stage with a good, quick, clean KO. Or TKO, since he couldn't uh, answer the count. And a good, clean mullet win versus a good crew cut. I mean, shout out to the silver medal crew cut in that one. But yeah, it was a, it was a great uh, window into the potential of what this could be. And then we'll go into the second fight of the tournament. Keep in mind, this is a, a tournament. So it's eight fighters, four quarterfinals, semifinal, and the final. And fight number two was uh, Jam Lomolder versus... Kenji Kawaguchi, who was a 14 and 7 overall fighter, mostly with Shudo, notable losses to Carlos Newton, Vladimir wow. Mazushenko, and Eric Paulson, and those are not shameful losses on anyone's resume, especially at that time. Yeah, no, shout out to the janitor, Vladimir Matyshenko, man, uh, taught me Russian ties. That's a serious, serious grappler. And last thing I want to say about Bud Smith, he is extremely fresh going into the second round. And when you think about the tournament element, that was a very, very effective first round. Oh, win. yeah, I mean, he probably barely uh, barely got a sweat on there. And I do have to apologize, it's Jan Lomolder. He is uh, from Holland, so different pronunciation. And in this fight, we see for the first time in the tournament the third opponent in these matches, which are the loose-as-fuck ropes. So this ring was done for... I don't even understand. I think they were trying to like make it a kickboxing style ropes. I don't know. The ropes were loose as hell. So they were falling out of this. How many times did they fall out of the ring? Like five, six? Five, four, five times easy. Yeah. And this was a fight where Kawaguchi was clearly the superior technician, superior wrestler, getting takedowns left and right. But he was giving up a lot of weight and clearly not used to dealing with a superior Dutch style, you know, kickboxing striker. Because it would be him taking him down, trying for some stuff. His opponent, you know, Lomolder would, would power out of it, get to his feet, and start soccer kicking the fuck, stomping the fuck Ooh. out of him. And then they would tumble out of the ropes. And then it would be, a, or even at one point, they were like out on the apron and he's stomping on the dude while he's on the apron. They're not stopping shit. Great refereeing, guys. Oh, man, that was almost, you could hold that single matchup as the blueprint of every single thing that has been banned as dangerous for MMA. They had, first of all, the reason the standing eight count is much more dangerous than a, a current MMA-style referee stoppage is it's not the blunt force trauma of the knockout that will do the permanent damage. It's the additional stuff. So you can be tough, get knocked out, get back up. And then you take that second one. That's where the permanent stuff was. That fool went through about seven medical stoppages and about 10 blows that would have gotten a current fight stopped, including kick to the head of a down opponent, 12 to six elbow. He literally curb stomped him on the edge of the ring, bro. And then he kicked him out of the ring. And then he got back and he got kicked again. And the funniest part was he kicked the guy out of the ring and Lomolder runs up and gets up on the corner celebrating like he won and only for Kawaguchi to get back in the ring and continue the beating he was taken because it was a case of somebody being technically superior on the ground but not knowing how to deal with a weight advantage or dealing with somebody who was a much better striker than he was. So it's just everybody flying through the ring, the referee not being able to get control of things, 
several things that were already not allowed by the uh, you know by the rules at hand. I didn't realize they were doing countouts on the ring. I don't know if that was just his pro wrestling referee instinct kicking in. Who can say? Who knows? But oh my god, what a train wreck of a fight that was with Omelder making the advancement to the semifinals. Wow. What's your takeaway on that bad boy? You know, that was the prototype of the Japanese fighting spirit, Japanese fighting, fighting spirit job guy. Because God damn, did he take an ass whooping in the name of an L right there hunting a submission. It also showed like proto, you know, like you said, Dutch kickboxing versus Japanese really, really submission heavy styles because he was hanging on limbs. But man, he got kicked in the head probably, either kicked or knee in the head probably 50 times. It was brutal. It was the longest fight of the first two. It was a train wreck with the constant going through the ropes with all of the curb stomps. But we had a winner. So we move on to the next of the quarterfinals with Japanese fighter Kazuhiro Kusiyanagi taking on David Lavecki. And if the name David Lavecki sounds familiar, he fought in UFC 2. He fought in the preliminaries losing to Johnny Rhodes. And he is a big guy. He is a Wing Chun guy. He was a ON1 guy going into this fight. Oh boy, do we do we just want to see a Wing Chun guy win a fight or do we want to see a Wing Chun guy win a fight? God damn, I, that would be amazing. I love Wing Chun and I love, uh, you know, I just visualize like a Steven Seagal. <laughs> this is good. Yes, I want to see it, man. I'm, I'm in. I'm invested, bro. Two fights in. They got me hooked, brother. I'm in all over again like it's 94. So this fight, the first thing you notice as soon as this fight starts is a little thing called size difference that you don't see in modern MMA, and for good goddamn reason. What was he, almost twice the size of his Japanese opponent? Levicki towered over him like a goddamn monster. Yeah, that wasn't even, I mean, it'd be one thing if the guy was like a small heavyweight versus someone who's at the, the size peak of the weight class, but that guy looks like a proper big-ass heavyweight going up against like a 55-er, or maybe a welterweight. I mean... Levicki probably had legitimately half a foot and anywhere from 80 to maybe 120 pounds on him. Easy. And Levicki and Kusa Yanagi, they just kind of felt each other out. Not even feeling each other out. They were circling, throwing no strikes for probably, what was it, like 20 seconds or so. It felt like an eternity because, gosh, it was boring. And then, you know, Kasa Yanagi finally starts throwing some strikes. Levicki just kind of parries him. No bothering with footworks. He's twice the size. What's he going to do? Uh, Kusiyanagi shoots for the double, can't quite land it, eats some punches, curls up, eats some more punches. The referee uh, didn't even seem like he bothered with the, with the standing count. He just waved it off because he was not defending himself in any meaningful way. Yeah, right? I wonder if that was a, like, uh, last-minute substitution or some situation like that. Because I just feel like even for the aesthetic and the eye test, that doesn't seem like it had much merit. And it definitely had a lower, that really lowered the quality of everything. Now I just want to see this guy get his ass whipped. Because also, he was a Wing Chun guy, but he won with absolutely no Wing Chun. He won by being 100 pounds bigger, a foot taller, and punching the guy standing over him while he's hugging his leg. And this fight, 
would set the stage for something we would see constantly in Japanese MMA for years to come, which is we are going to take an American or Brazilian martial artist and we're going to put them up against a Japanese pro wrestler, hoping to demonstrate the combat superiority of a Japanese pro wrestler with, is mixed results the nice way to put it? Well, mixed results would imply that, like, it goes both ways sometimes. I would say, I would say with, like, hilarious or maybe it's, it's, it's had such catastrophic results that it's become its own beloved, like, genre for nerds like us of Japanese tough guys that just don't have the skills to be in there, but they just can take a hell of an ass whooping. They got anvil heads and they can keep coming forward. It's really, uh, it's. It's a testament to the human spirit of not wanting to be ashamed. Oh, I wish I could know what that's like, because I'm ashamed of myself every minute of every day. And I am ashamed of how much I <laughs> looked up this next fight, because we're moving on to fight four, where we finally see Hicks and Gracie, the legend himself, the man that you would see in at least one article on Black Belt Magazine for almost probably uh, three straight years, and he was taking on wrestler... Yoshiniro Nishi, who was a legendary judoka and wrestler trained by Kimura, and he competed in any combat art against anyone, including a kickboxing match against Rob Kanan, which lasted 1 minute 51 seconds and ended in a brutal KO. You can watch it on YouTube. There, even if you're a pretty damn good, even world-class kickboxer, in, 19, in the early 90s, going up against Rob Kanan was not a good idea. Oh, yeah, dude, you're going to get fucking served. And also, though, you notice in this format for this tournament, whoever comes out of this first round, fourth match, they got three one-dimensional strikers in front of them to just maul. Oh, yeah, no, that is 100% true. Because, yeah, all the, pretty much all the, like, the first fight was a competitive one. Two, you know, Americans or two, you know, two two strikers on their feet. Striking mullet monster versus, you know, uh, uh, karate Lan top. Yeah, yeah L Lance Storm's older brother. And you know, Hicks and Gracie came out with some of his students, very Gracie train esque. And Nishi came out cornered by Fujiwara, which is a big goddamn deal in the Japanese wrestling world. Adds definitely to his legacy and his legitimacy going into the fight against the legendary Hicks and Gracie. Oh, this is cool. I'm very excited for this. So the fight was less a fight than it was a demonstration of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. The two men really didn't feel like doing a lot of striking, tied up immediately. Nishi tried to go for a leg trip, couldn't do it. Gracie gets him down, ends up in the half guard. What happened after that? Well, first of all, I think it's interesting based on the rule set um, from what I've seen. I'm not sure if they can wear gis, but I thought it was very interesting that Hickson didn't have a gi when this guy's a judoku meaning that that's going to be a real advantage for the judo player if he does have a gi. So I thought that was an interesting aspect of it, and, and that definitely played a part. But what you saw, by modern standards, it looked very like Khabib-ish or almost like um, one of those guys that are coming up now from that camp where they just walk through because he literally just walked forward like he was walking up to him at the bar and then just threw a entry kick and shot and from that point they were glued once they hit the ground you saw the effectiveness of topside gracie jiu-jitsu 
from the guy who pretty much invented the smash and pass mall and, and brawl and the cauliflower shower. And yeah, he passed the guard, he passed the half guard, you know, just nice and patiently, very, very early Gracie Jiu Jitsu style, mm -hmm. not, not in any hurry, just slow cooking him. Almost immediately got the back from the mount, starts going for that that very formula at the time, you know, throwing the punches, body, body, head, body, body, head until he gave him something. And what Nishi gave him was his neck, rear naked choke, on, 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 tap out, done. Again, another fairly quick fight, completely one-sided. Hickson Gracie is the winner. And it was also very curious because in the rule set, they did say that you could get a standing eight off of a submission. That didn't happen. I feel like there was a lot of mistranslation when uh, they were doing the dubbing for how the rules worked. I couldn't find a lot of information online. If there was any nuance to it, who the hell knows? But again, it was takedown, pass guard, mount, punches, roll them over, get the back, punches, sub, jujitsu in action, as we saw time and time again in this era. And it lived up to what your first idea of what Hickson would be like because I remember the first time that it was presented to me it's like Hickson's like hoist except he does it while he's on the top and I was like oh like he's strong and he does jujitsu that's crazy and that was kind of what you expected it's the name of the game is with that style is space elimination and you don't give refunds elicit response take away the next space and that's what you saw you knew he was in bad shape Anytime you get somebody face down in the mount and their knees are up and their ass is down or they're like bowed backwards, they're in a bad spot, brother. And one question I had after watching this was why make this match in the first round? Did they not understand Hickson's skill level? Did they want to give the nearly 40-year-old Nishi the chance to fight him fresh? Did they think it would be the advantage of Nishi to beat Hickson first, then steamroll whomever came next? The two best guys by a mile paired up in the first round. So I kind of feel that it was a situation where they kind of were wanting to give Nishi the chance to go in fresh, beat Hickson in the first round, and then everybody else after that would be bums compared to that. So I kind of feel this is another situation where the Japanese promoter was banking on the Japanese shoot-style pro wrestler beating the jiu-jitsu legend and just honestly didn't know that, as we always talk about, there are levels to this thing. Oh, yeah, but it's it's interesting because it's like there are levels to this thing, but then you want to go out and get the, ba the bad, the big bad brother of the Gracie brothers and you just assume that your guy is going to smoke him. That was some hubris, because, I mean, you know, like I said, a lot of it is legend and bullshit, but there is the truth to the effectiveness that he was the most vicious Gracie brother at the time, and we saw that in action, so that was a, a bad calculation on the Booker's part, although, yeah, it's pretty much lined up where whoever came out of this is going to have three strikers in front of them that they're not going to have very much fun uh, dealing with the winner of this match. Yoshinori Nishi, he went on to train Kao Uno, Akira Shoji, Dajiro Takasi, and Yushin Okami, so his student roster was pretty gosh darn deep and pretty gosh darn good. And this one really does fall into something I was thinking about, which is the fallacy of shoot wrestlers as real fighters. There's nothing wrong with the technique and strategy of shoot wrestling. It comes down to a lack of experience due to a lack of large-scale competition. 
in judo, BJJ, wrestling, etc. You compete against tons of different guys with different bodies and abilities, but when you're only really competing against the guys from your own dojo, you don't really get the same kind of growth. Especially when the pressure of a big brother style hierarchy is in place like you find in a Japanese dojo system. And the lack of weight classes didn't help either because Gracie was a heavier, bigger guy. But yeah, it's, that's something I really think about when I watch early Japanese MMA. It's like they had the skill set, but they weren't out there like wrestling against a good wrestler, striking against a good striker doing subs against a different type of submission guy. It was all very much like you're going to be going against the same 20 guys time and time again. And it's hard to grow past that, especially when you do have that, again, that kind of hierarchy. You don't really want to embarrass Big Brother. You're intimidated. It's there, There's a lot of factors going into it. But while it does make somebody comfortable with competition, it doesn't really make you a better fighter every time. Yeah, I mean, what it comes down to is who has been sharpened against the most difficult uh, preparation into that moment, right? Assuming all things are equal, it's like if you come from a dojo of dogs and that guy comes from a dojo of, like, nerds, you're probably coming from, you're going to be tougher, but you are you are the contemporaries of the toughness that you have faced. So if you're only training in the gym and that guy's out competing against other people, he's going to have a wider range of that. And that's that's you're right. As you said, there are levels to this thing. And that is the end of the first round and that brings us into the semifinal fight. And you'll notice I said semifinal fight singular because there was only one because Yom Womolder hurt himself in his first fight. He wasn't able to advance, he wasn't able to fight again, and they did not have an alternate. They didn't have a plan of something going wrong because this is the first time a tournament in MMA went wrong. So there was only one fight. Bud Smith, Mr. Mullet, Mr. American Trunks, he got a bye in the second round, which led to Hicks and Gracie having the only semifinal fight against the big Wing Chun man, David Levicki. Oh, this is, okay, first of all, um, I'm sure Jan got injured by breaking his foot on homeboy's head. So. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm sure it's something like that. Like, he hyperextended the back of his knee, like, aggressively trying to stomp him through the ropes during during the chaos. I'm, yeah. sure, I'm sure it's a goofball injury. Yeah, he hurt himself hurting the other guy, pretty much. He, he put himself out of action by smashing the other guy too much. And it's it shows, though, one, one savvy promoter move. Hickson gonna fight three times. Like, he's getting his money's worth. And Hickson, I do love that now you're about to have Hickson on this immobile f fucking bear of a Wing Chung embarrassment. This guy this guy is everything that's bad with the idea of one-dimensional martial arts. Wing Chung is great if they do exactly what you need them to do for Wing Chung to work, but this is about to be a lesson in uh, style versus style. So this fight was... Again, the, the, the third opponent in the ring, the loose ropes came into play because Levicki and Hickson, again, huge size difference. Again, looks like a, a big brother playing with his little, his little brother. It was a hundred pound weight difference. And I think that is one of the big reasons you saw Hickson being a little hesitant at the start. Yeah, and I think it also showed that like his, Hickson's 
striking was ultimately pretty rudimentary. No head movement. His eyes were locked on, eye to eye contact the chin, whole time. Chin, chin up, up, hand down, but not shoulder up. It's it's kind of like yeah. the first time somebody tries to do like a Philly shell, but they've never been trained to do it. They just yeah. saw it on TV. And this was also the days when one of the biggest things of the kind of Gracie jiu-jitsu style as presented in MMA at the time was the slow cook. You yep. know, they were never worried about rushing in and getting the job done because they, you know, had so only so much time to do it, whatever. So he was fighting a guy 100 pounds bigger than him and was just going to slow cook the tie-up to the ground. So a little bit of feeling out. But yeah, it's something we, like we talked about is how... You know, Hicks and Gracie, for all his strengths, did not know how to strike or how to posture against a good striker. His wrestling was decent, but not fantastic. So it's one of those things where we can fantasy book till, you know, we, we run out of breath. But yeah, there were a few guys in those days where I wonder, like, how well could he have done against, you know, Matt Hume is who you brought up, for example. Totally. Where there's a lot of guys who I feel were well-rounded enough to keep that fight standing where Hickson would have had no ability to do anything about it, but those fights never happened for a myriad of reasons, so there's no real point in spending too much time on the could-haves. Yeah, and, um, you know, yeah, a, a really, really good sprawling brawler where Hickson couldn't get him into his zone. If the shark can't get you in the water, he, he wouldn't be nearly as effective, and we saw that the level of his effectiveness really... Had, it was like blue belt striking, blue belt wrestling, and then he got him on the ground. And then it looked like a pissed off sensei was some big bully that just came into the gym and has been roughing up all his students. And he whooped that ass. He dragged him around. He ragdolled the man 100 pounds bigger than him on the ground and played with him. And they did, during the initial tie-up, have a spill completely out of the ring. Yes. Both of them fell out. Again, the super loose boxing style ropes. Nobody thought this through, I think. I do not know. But yeah, they both crashed out. They get back in. Hickson pretty much goes after him, gets that uh, that that side mount, gets the uh, wraparound gift wrap on the arm, just starts laying in brutal body shots. It's just yanking him around for positioning, doing whatever he wants. And this is one of those things where I can't tell what happened on the end because... You know, it looked like Levicki was tapping from the shots, but I can't tell if the referee broke it up because he saw the tap and gave us gave a standing count, or if he was just clearly like half KO'd, even though it was on the ground, gave him a standing eight. Either way, Levicki couldn't get to his feet or even to his knees. Hickson wins the only semifinal fight. Yeah, I think the last thing that you noticed with that that knockout was I think Hickson knocked him out with the second to last punch. Completely unconscious. Then the next punch woke him back up, and that's when he was kind of tapping. And I think maybe this is much of a reaction. Sometimes the referee is reacting off the guy giving the attack, where it's like a guy that vicious just stops. There's probably a reason, just instinctually, when you see the predator stopping the kill, you probably assume that they know that the kill is dead. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I feel like the, the ref was probably diving in to break up the fight off of the yeah, KO first. because I don't think he even saw the tap. Yeah, I don't think so either. But so. just off the reaction of... Also, Hickson didn't rush back in to get on him again. Like, he knew he was done. Yeah. He walked away from him. And that'll tell you a lot, too, you know? Well, Hickson had the only semifinal match 
It was a steamroller, but he did fall out of the ring with a big man on top of him. He came back clearly a little more intense after that. Maybe that woke him up a little. Maybe that got him a little refocused. Who can say? But despite uh, you know, despite not having another semifinal, they did get a nice rest period because what they put together was kind of a shooto exhibition, kind of showing off the shooto sport. Maybe this was their attempt to draw in the new viewers who might be able to find the VHSs. Who can say? But it was Naoki Sakurada versus Yasushi Warida. And this was actually a decent fight. It was actually the best, like, entertaining fight on the card because it looked like a modern MMA fight because you had two guys that were fairly evenly matched. They could strike. They could wrestle. They could do submissions on the ground. They went to a draw because, of course, they did. Um, but... The one thing that I kind of took away from watching this, and I would love your opinion on this, is seeing the strengths, but also the glaring weakness of Japanese pro wrestling shoot wrestlers of the time, which is being very well-rounded, but not being superior in any one aspect of combat. They could all wrestle, but at the same level. They could all do submissions, but at the same level. They could all strike, but at the same level. Tying back to what I was saying, earlier uh, after that first Hickson fight where nobody could do the one thing good enough to dominate the other guy because everybody kind of has a very incestuous small training and competition pool where you're not bringing in a Dutch kickboxer. You're not bringing in an American wrestler. You're not bringing in a Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy. So all your, your, three, your three parts of combat kind of stay at the same as the other guy so, which is makes entertaining fights, but it looked more like a modern amateur fight as opposed to a contemporary pro fight. Yeah, I mean, from the time the thing was, first of all, it wasn't MMA. It was style versus style because MMA was an evolution of individual styles, and they're starting to blend it here. But my point is, at the time, you were either a one trick pony, like a Hickson or a kickboxer or whatever. Or you were a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. And so, like, what you see at that time, just the evolution of the game, there are guys that are legitimately, like, professional or black belt level at one aspect of fighting and then pretty much novice at everything else. Or you have kind of the, like you said, sort of, like, sharp enough to be proficient in all areas but not really mastered or, or effective enough to stand out or, or win in any area. So it's like you're just good enough to be a job guy in every aspect of the game and get your ass whipped and stay in there. So I, at this time, being a mas being a one trick pony is definitely better than being a master than a master and none. I'd say. Yeah, if, for those of you who have never been involved in combat sports, there are really three aspects of the fight game. There is striking, there is wrestling, and there is submission, and you have to be better than the other guy at two out of those three. A guy can be a better submission wrestler than you, but if you're a better wrestler and a better striker, he can't get you on the ground to submit you. You can stand and pick him apart with your superior strikes. Or if you are the superior striker, but the other guy is the superior wrestler and submission guy, well, he's going to be able to take you down and submit you and take your striking out of the game. So you have to have the two out of the three being better, but if you're evenly matched on all three, you really don't have a lot of room to growth. You're not being challenged. You have no capacity to dominate when, say, again, a Dutch kickboxer comes into the fray and is beating the ungodly dog shit out of you like we saw in the second fight tonight.
Yeah, and that's part of where this evolution came from, is guys got the unholy brakes beat off of them and then went back and were like, we got to not let that happen again because we thought we were bad motherfuckers. And now all of a sudden, now you got boxers in your camp. You got kickboxers in your camp. And it evolved to the point where modern camps, everyone there is either deadly proficient at one thing and they're there to train that one thing with the fighters or everyone is lethal at everything. And that brings us to the final fight of the night. The main event, the final of the tournament, Bud Smith, the man with a mullet, the man with a mustache, the man with the American flag on his ass, the man with the one-punch knockout, the man who didn't even get a second fight. Maybe he was too dangerous to even get that second fight. He obliterated his opponent during his fight with his mind. Who can say? And Versus, his mullet. Yeah, for his mullet power. The, me the, the mental mullet. This is for, how it should be. And he was coming in against Hickson, who... Clearly, uh, didn't really have any problems in his first two fights, but he still did have two fights going into this, and it was pretty much what you expected it to be. So anybody who was around in those days, anybody who watched the old UFCs one through, you know, maybe even as far as ten, when you have a 100% striker, no matter how good a striker he is, go up against a very good grappler, let alone a world-class grappler. It tends to be a little one-sided, wouldn't you say? Bud Smith was robbed! This was clear hippodrome. Yes, how preposterous. No, I mean, it just shows, man. One-trick pony, style versus style. And, and, and in that era, like you said, currently it's about having two of the three advantages, right? In the three aspects of the fight game. You can think of it like Air Force, ground troops, and the Navy. But back then, it's like which... Which it, the striker is the Air Force. He's on the top, but as soon as he's in the water, man, he's done. And you saw it right there. Yeah, and actually, this did demonstrate that idea because, uh, you know, Bud Smith came out through one punch, and then Hickson, his wrestling was superior. He took Smith down immediately. He immediately applied his jujitsu. He got mount almost immediately. He crossed those ankles behind, and there was no way Bud Smith was going anywhere on his best day on Hickson's worst. Punches were thrown, and if you were expecting some big submission, you are wrong. The punches are all it took. A couple of good ones landed. Bud Smith realized it's only going to get worse from here and taps out. Ding, ding, ding. I'm sure it was just added in post-production, but in the, when you watch it on video, it looks like a wrestling match where they had his music queued up for as soon as the bell rang. They, you know, the music cue plays. Hoyler runs in to congratulate Hickson. The yeah, Hickson probably fought the he fought the most of anyone that night, and he still only fought probably about six or seven minutes. Yeah, that was yeah. I mean, pretty much. And when you say fought, he probably fought about twenty seconds in terms of moments where there was a legitimate competition or any element of potential for his opponent to win he was playing with his food and the majority of that yeah it was it was a steamroller he did not have really any competition in any way again if you watch this on youtube or fight pass you will see some guys that 
really, what are they even doing there? And why did they spend that much money to fly them in except to try to feed them to Japanese pro wrestlers? And it didn't exactly go the way they wanted, but it did make a big impact in Japan. It did the thing it wanted to do. It got everyone's attention. It legitimized Shudo even more than it already was as the premier like pro wrestling legit combat company. And there were subsequent Valley Tudo Japans. It became a, there was the 95, the 96, it became an annual thing. And it put Hickson back on, you know, with a hit VHS, if you could find it. It put him back on the magazines. It put his, it, it kind of demonstrated the reality behind the legend that everybody else had only heard about in interviews or read about in magazines. You could actually see it go down and not in the like grainy home videos of the Gracie Jiu Jitsu and action tapes. Yeah, and it also, the, the, the term Valley Tudo, what that translates to is what works. That's what that means. It means what works, uh, the martial art. Valley Tudo. And um, one aspect of this I thought, I remember was like, oh, like the gi is why jiu-jitsu is so effective. Gracie was using the gi. Gracie was using the gi in UFC, you know, in the originals with Hoist. But here it showed Hickson without the gi, and it showed a little bit more of sort of like the combat jiu-jitsu element with the striking, striking as the supplementation of the gi work to affect the guard passes and the openings. And I thought that was really cool at the time, and I think it was a very, even by modern standards, if you talk about like street fighting, that is a very, very good example of, of multiple ways you could demonstrate effective jiu-jitsu in a real fight against a regular person. And I also feel the, the gi wasn't necessary because Hickson is more of an athlete. It might not yeah. even have been allowed. That also might be a thing. It might have been a rule thing. Most likely was. But also, Hickson is more of an athlete. He's more of an aggressive fighter. He's more of a, you know, he has the strength to match his technique. Yeah. He, he didn't need... Like the gi, I feel with Hoist was almost a deceptive thing to make him look like some, like you know, some goofball in his in his in his grappling pajamas. And also Hoist's, uh, I mean, he clearly has that combat athleticism. It's it's a whole different thing. But he needed the gi for somebody to try to grab onto him. It just gave him a little more of an advantage. Yeah. And again, it kind of was it gave him the uh, the ringer energy. It kind of gave him the, Straight I'm just up. a goofball in my gear. We having some fights, fellas? Versus the guy in his tank top with his, uh, his cool Ray-Bans. So it really upended what people thought of as a legitimate tough guy. And this was just him illustrating that we don't need that trick anymore. We don't need that ruse because everybody knows what's coming. Everybody knows yeah. what I'm bringing to the table. So doing that serves no real purpose. And it would actually probably slow him down against a lot of the Japanese fighters who many times have judo backgrounds totally. and know to hang on to a gi even if all it does is postpone the inevitable. But when it's a tournament, there's no such thing as a spare moment. Yeah, man. And shout out to the legend, bro. Bud Smith's mullet and just his whole look and demeanor. His two-piece. Dude, I, I'm I'm a fan, bro. I want to know what happened to Bud Smith. Where is that guy at now? I tried to find information and I could not find a gosh darn thing. I want to buy that guy a beer. He probably needs one. 
And the show was, like I said, it was a success. It, it made enough money to continue uh, the, the concept, continue the, the brand. And it caught a lot of attention because, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, when everybody in Japanese wrestling is saying, we're the shooters, you're the fakers. Well, now we have a game of escalation where everybody else has to go, oh, no, now we have to fight a Gracie. And you know what? Hickson beat this guy, so the only way I'm going to one-up this is by beating Hickson. And that's what happened when Japanese wrestler Nobuhiko Takata challenged Hickson Gracie, clearly wanting to steal the thunder away from Shudo and bring it uh, to the Union of Wrestling Forces International, or UWFI, which was his wrestling federation. Hickson declined, claiming that he didn't trust Takata and his organization and would fight him, but only on his own terms. He was very concerned with the possibility of a screw job with a referee provided by Takata, which is very smart and very pro wrestling. Yeah, because that's like a, you know, two heels. I know you're going to cheat, motherfucker, because I'm going to cheat. So, yeah, I'm sure he wanted the home cooking booking as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like we, we've covered that type of thing so many times in our, you know, we're talking about old pro wrestling where you would be like, Oh, uh, you know, we, we argued for two hours before the show about who would be the referee or you made sure you controlled who the referee was or they tried to sub out a, a last minute replacement referee because screw jobs start and end with who's wearing the stripes in the ring with the fighters. That's it, man. And whether you talk about Earl Hefner and the and the, uh, the Montreal screw job, or you're talking about Floyd Mayweather always having his referee, and that's contractually built into his fights, and that's held up contract negotiations with, with uh, Pacquiao in the past. And as you can imagine, in Japanese culture, being accused of such skullduggery, even if skullduggery was your actual plan, is quite the insult. And this insult was met with fellow UWFI wrestler Yoshi Anjo crossing the Atlantic to challenge Hickson to a fight at his own dojo. So Anjo showed up at Hickson's school, challenged him to a fight right then and there. Hickson famously said, If we fight for money, I'll stop whenever you tell me. If we fight for honor, I'll stop whenever I feel like it. Ooh, dude, that is a fucking line, and that is some pro wrestling shit, and I bet that pumped a little fear. Oh, no, I mean, uh, that's one of those, like, I don't care how, how much bluster you've got. When somebody says something like that, you have to go, oh, well, I guess we're in a little too deep, and he was in too deep in every way possible. The fight went down. And it went down behind closed doors, and the match was recorded, but has never been released by Hickson's camp. But the outcome was clear when they stepped back outside after the fight. Hickson was in pristine condition, while Anjo was a bloodied mess. Anjo sent a letter apologizing afterwards, and in the spirit of the apology, Hickson praised Anjo for his warrior spirit, aka for taking a beating and not tapping out when Hickson got the choke. So this was something where Anjo got the brakes beaten off, off of him by Hickson behind closed doors. He took the beating of a lifetime trying to avenge the insult to his sensei. And Hickson, I have to say, like, he... I almost I like I'm very curious like his motivation for never putting the tape out there. Maybe it was to discourage other people from trying to do the same thing. It's like the Jackass disclaimer. Remember Jackass on MTV oh, where yeah. they would say, "Don't send us any tapes. We won't even watch them." So maybe it was just to discourage people from showing up to his dojo every other weekend because goddamn it, he has weed to smoke and classes to teach. 
And maybe, you know, though, I will say this. A lot of people, and maybe there's a lot of showmanship and disingenuousness now to it, and it's and it has this corrupted, almost comical element to it where it's become a, a caricature of itself. But at its root, one, one of the core principles that Gracie Jiu-Jitsu does teach is the classic Japanese-style martial arts honor and those elements that go with the traditional martial arts element. So maybe this was him seeing an opportunity and because this is a classic fucking martial arts movie situation this fool went across the ocean to avenge his sensei and then honorably took the ass whooping and then uh apologized it's like i could see hickson being like you know the most martial artsy and and most cred i could get right now is doing the honorable thing and it's funny to mention honor because anjo kind of uh didn't have any because once he was back in japan Anjo changed his story and claimed that a bunch of Hickson's team jumped him and it wasn't a fair fight. Hickson had a friend show the Japanese press the tape of the fight, and that was that. So whatever you think of Hickson, be he the truly greatest fighter of his generation, or an inflated myth created for marketing purposes, or somewhere in the middle as most things are, the events of 1994 cemented his place in the formative years of MMA and birthed what would become the MMA boom in Japan of the late 90s, which is some of my favorite stuff that has ever happened in the fight game. And this, in a way, is where it was born. I just want to say, out of all the guys on the ground, Bud Smith did the best against Hickson. Shout out to Bud Smith. He honestly did. He tried that, I don't know what I'm doing, tried to, like, roll back and hook you with his feet. Like, uh, you know, it's nothing that would work, but gosh darn it, he did his best. And I am so glad that I just kind of picked this one out of a hat because the pro wrestlingness of it, the pro wrestling uh, background of it, the what? lack of quality of the actual competition. Or planning. Or planning. Like there were so <laughs> many things that were just slapped together. But again, this is the nucleus of MMA in Japan. This is where it started. It was Takata calling out Hickson that would lead to the creation of Pride. You really can't take this one out of the equation without the whole thing tumbling down like a Jenga game gone wrong. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where it's like, this is, if not the first, this is one of the dominoes that you could not, if this domino wasn't in history, none of the shit we know would have happened. This is one of those, like, evolutionary, pivotal moments. So it changed the game. It proved pro wrestling could be applied in a combat situation. It led to a growth of Shudo. It led to its own brand. It led to a birth of other brands. It changed the game on both sides of the sport. And that's where the story is going to end because the story has to end somewhere. And here it is. I loved this. I'm glad we got to watch this. I'm glad we got to talk about it. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks and we'll probably talk about some old timey pro wrestling, just like we always do, just like you love, just like I love. If you feel like making a donation to our research, books are expensive. The archives aren't free for me to dip my toe into. And uh, well, I guess I dip my eyes into them because I read things. So that'll be in the description if you feel like Venmoing us a couple of bucks. No pressure. I'll keep doing this for free no matter what because I love it. So we'll get back to you in a couple of weeks with another crazy story of pro wrestling and combat sports. For Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you next time.
Peace out, nerds. 400 and 0 Valley Tudo.